0: People will say, I believe and I have consciousness because I do. Um, I know I have consciousness because I have it. Um, But actually, if you believe it and quote unquote know it and insist on it, it's because somewhere in your brain is information that's telling your higher cognition that you have it. So there's a bundle of information that is essentially a description of what consciousness is and is telling you that you have it. It's information. And those bundles of information are never accurate. They're always simplified. So now we have an interesting case (laughs) because maybe you do have something um, that is sort of similar to consciousness, but it's not going to be what you think you have. Just like the apple in real in the real world is not the apple that you think is there.
1: Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number one hundred and sixty nine, and this episode is with Michael Graziano, who is professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University, where he is. Well, I guess I don't know. He he is a, a novelist. He's a musician, composer, but. I suppose he is not a novelist and composer at Princeton University, but at Princeton, he and his lab research, the brain basis of consciousness, which is incidentally exactly what we talk about in this episode. And I will say right here and now that this conversation seriously impacted how I've been thinking about consciousness. And there are many, many mind warping nuggets here, Uh, but more specifically mind warping nuggets aside, we get into the philosophical question of what consciousness is, the roles of philosophy and science in answering this question, and whether or not there are deep, intractable issues here, such as answering the hard problem of consciousness, as David Chalmers famously put it. Then we talk about Michael's theory of consciousness, which is the attention schema theory, in which consciousness is a way in which the brain models attention to better organize and monitor it. And I'm, I'm going to let Michael explain that uh, because he can do a much better job than I can. And his most recent book is Rethinking Consciousness. There is a link to it in the description. I highly recommend it. And now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Michael. Michael, please correct me if I if you think I should be drawing some finer grain distinctions here. But you began your career researching visuospatial and motor processing and only shifted to work more on consciousness around 2010. And I was wondering why your interests evolved in, in this direction in particular.
0: I think uh, the question of consciousness is in the backs of the minds of pretty much all Neuroscientists, all psychologists, probably everyone's minds, right? Um, and when you start out, really, it's uh, you want to start with you want to start in science with something much more concrete. You want to get your you know sink your teeth into something that you can uh, you can figure out. And so, I think most most of us start in much more nuts and bolts kinds of issues, and I certainly did. But one of the things that happened, uh, it turned out to be a very natural progression. I went from sensory processes to movement control and uh, kind of moving forward in the brain, the sensory processing parts of the brain tend to be in the back and the motor control tends to be in the front. And then from motor control, began to get into this whole world of theory and um, experiment on how the brain not only controls the body, but builds models or simulations of the body. right? There's this thing called the body schema, which is in in us, in our brains. Our brains build this virtual body and then keep track of it and use it to figure out how to move the real body uh, and to keep track of the real body. And it turns out that there's this very general principle that all controllers need a model of the thing they control. Uh, And it was really that which led to this concept well the brain doesn't just control the physical body the brain controls itself right and it, and so it needs a model of itself it needs a nice straightforward simplified model of itself and it was that straight from the motor control literature straight into this idea that we're building self models and that led straight into the consciousness work that what we we call consciousness is really a very special kind of self-model so it was a very natural progression in my case
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah I I think of consciousness as the the Holy Grail so so to speak of neuroscience so when people don't study it I, I had already kind of jumped to the conclusion that it was because the problem doesn't seem immediately tractable and when you went into neuroscience did you already have it in mind that you were trying to identify building blocks that would work toward this theory of consciousness? Or did it just it just happen to, to unfold that way?
0: I think it just happened to unfold that way. I mean, I've always been interested in it. I don't think I saw myself as at the outset intentionally pursuing it. It was only later that I sort of looked at what we had and said, wait, this actually is very relevant to it. So, um, But there's a lot. And one of the wonderful things about science is that Almost anywhere you look, there's a lot of really cool stuff to study. Whether it's you know very cosmic-like consciousness, or whether it's really really specific, like you know people who study uh, the membranes of neurons, this is a really specific kind of um, mechanistic scaffold from which ultimately thought and neural processing occurs, whatever, whatever level it is that you're studying is just wonderful, fascinating stuff to study. So I was quite happy. I was quite content to study these nuts and bolts things. And yet there came a time when I looked at it and said, whoa, wait a minute, this actually looks like uh, it directly addresses this really cosmic question as well.
1: Hmm. Well, I I want to get back to model building in the body schema, because I know you've written that model-based knowledge is very important to your approach for understanding consciousness. But first, there were just some, I guess, context-setting questions that I wanted to get to. And first, are you at all interested in philosophers' work on consciousness? I've never asked a, a neuroscientist this question, but in other areas like physics or mathematics, I have the sense that many people sort of resent or maybe look down on philosophers meddling in their work is that i don't i don't want to start this off negatively or uh with charge here but how do you think about philosophers working in in the in mind i guess consciousness if you can put it broadly first of all i
0: would say uh, i actually have a background in physics and um i studied physics as an undergrad and i even not only took physics and math classes i even took philosophy of physics classes and the whole thing is very interesting And of course uh, neuroscience has a lot of roots in philosophy i would say first that people who dismiss philosophy don't know the history because science is philosophy it's a branch of philosophy and it came out of philosophy and um my feeling is in physics philosophy is really just an attempt to understand the concepts um and to get away from the specifics of the math Uh, and yet you still have to have the math to understand the concepts. And so the philosophy and the physics are really meshed together. Uh, And I think that's true in consciousness as well. They're really meshed together. I think there are a lot of philosophical perspectives on consciousness, some of which I absolutely do not agree with and think are completely silly, Uh, but some I do agree with. Um, So I don't see the divide as being between science and philosophy on this one. In fact, many of the philosophers are just as uh, scientific, meaning empirical and data-driven, as the scientists. Many of the scientists are just as philosophical, meaning conceptual, uh, as the philosophers. I, I see a, the divide more between uh, what I would call the magicalists, the people who essentially believe there's a magic essence, and how do we explain it, and um, you know, the more rationalist perspective, which doesn't, um doesn't resort to the magic, and there are philosophers on both sides of that. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I have definitely spoken to philosophers of of consciousness. I don't think you can go into that field without encountering a lot of the uh, philosophical perspectives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So maybe a, a good distinction to be drawn here is that between uh, good and bad philosophy. So I think uh, Stephen Hawking, since we were talking about physics, he said that he notably said that philosophy is dead. But presumably, he just didn't know enough about philosophy to tell the good philosophers from the bad philosophers. Because keeping with physics, there are plenty of terrific philosophers of physics who work very closely with physicists and have an eye on the empirical data. And I I mean, the same is true with philosophy of mind and consciousness. There are philosophers who are very data-driven.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. I mean, I think that uh anyone who's ever thought about the larger implications of their work is a philosopher. and so Stephen Hawking was a philosopher, even though he may have disliked them. he he essentially was one uh yeah, and there are people who read my work and say, oh okay, he's kind of he's a philosopher, which I find interesting. Um, I will say there is a difference in the fields as they stand right now that I find intriguing. It seems to me, that the um, bottom line in science is data can you get data that shows what you're talking about and in philosophy interestingly in terms of career in terms of success as a philosopher the bottom line is can you win an argument and those are really different things and very often i find philosophers have a certain you know professional philosophers have a certain magnetic attraction to Uh, argument structure that or or sophistry or attempts to convince people in ways that are more linguistic tricks than actual um, substance. And the the field lends itself a little bit more to that because the bottom line in terms of career success is can you win an argument? (laughs) That's very different in science. It doesn't matter whether you win the argument or not. All that matters is the data that you produce in the end.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And just to touch on something you said a couple of minutes ago, I think that your work that I've read is very philosophical. I mean, you you have to be philosophical to engage with people like David Chalmers or Daniel Dennett because you're on their turf, in a sense, when you bring up concepts and you're talking about these concepts quite deeply. Just as you said with philosophy of physics, it's about the concepts without having to get as much into the math.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And i certainly talked extensively to both of those people, to David Chalmers and Daniel Dennett, many times.
1: Yeah, it, it. I mean, we haven't talked about your work on consciousness yet, but it seems like Daniel Dennett would be very sympathetic to it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think my work represents a, a specific theory in the general um, landscape that Daniel Dennett likes to inhabit. And uh, yeah,
1: Okay, well, maybe we'll get back to that. But uh, continuing with this talk of concepts, perhaps I should ask, we've already indicated, we've already mentioned consciousness many times, but just what you mean by consciousness when you refer to it, since we we need to understand the the scope of the term if we want to explain it.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people have very different ideas about it, uh, especially colloquially. But in the world of consciousness studies, it has come to mean something relatively specific. And it it, it has come to mean experience, subjective experience. In, in a sense, it's very narrow. Uh, in a sense, I suppose it's very broad. But for example, colloquially, people think of consciousness as everything in my head, you know, my memories and my thoughts and decisions and visual perceptions and my just agency in general and so on. Uh but the way most people who study it think of it, that's not what they're talking about. Those are the things that can be in consciousness. But they don't have to be, because you can process sensory information and memories and make decisions outside of consciousness as well. Those are those are the things. Possible content of consciousness. Consciousness is the experience of it. So, if you have a a subjective experience of it, then you are conscious of it, and it's that aspect of it. Uh, No matter what it is you're experiencing, whether it's color or whether it's something deep and profound, like I don't know your own mortality or something like that. It's it's all it all it can be conscious if you have an experience of it i think that's how most of us talk about it and so this is the question how is it that uh the brain with neurons and information processing how does it make some things have experience uh attached to it or surrounding it and yet other things in the same brain don't and what distinguishes those two and what is the experienceness uh that's how most people, most of the philosophers of consciousness and scientists who study consciousness tend tend to think about it. So, that's really the definition that we're all working with.
1: Okay. So, just to reiterate, make sure that I've got it down, when you're referring to consciousness, it's independent of the actual things that seem to inhabit our awareness. So, it's objective experience, but stripped away of of sight, sound, touch, all of these things.
0: Well, sort of. I mean, probably can't be stripped away from it. It's always attached to something, Mm -hmm. but um, it's sort of like I sometimes describe it as a bucket, and people talk about the items in the bucket. And so when people say, what's my consciousness? It's my memories. No, that's an item in the bucket. It's my decision-making. No, that's another item in the bucket it's um, the red and the green that I see or the cold or the hot that I feel. No, those are items in the bucket. The bucket itself is the fact that you're conscious of them, (laughs) that you have a feel, that you have a subjective experience of them. And so one wants to understand why you have subjective experience of some of those things and not others. Uh, It's probably impossible to have subjective experience by itself without experiencing a specific thing Right? I'm not sure that that works. Um, but you can still ask whatever it is you're experiencing. Take the simplest case. You're looking at a green lawn and your visual system sees lawn, and grass, and so on. But you also have an experience of green. Where does the experience come from?
1: Hmm. Well, one last sort of context-setting question I wanted to ask is – whether you're aware of any crucial background assumptions that guide your work. And I think that that sounds pretty broad, but one that immediately comes to mind for me is that consciousness, the assumption that consciousness can be explained physically. And so you're implicitly ruling out uh, a dualist theory of mind here. Like there's something non-physical that's playing a part in consciousness.
0: I think there are always assumptions. Um, I mean, one thing we, yeah, sure. The, you never know about the world, right? Every, everything we think we know could be wrong if you really want to dip into philosophy, right? Maybe everything that I think I know is um, some kind of memory implant by some evil alien. You know, I mean, Who the heck knows? Uh, so you always end up making some kinds of assumptions. But among the assumptions that I make, uh, and I wrote a Paper relatively recently to lay out as clearly as possible what the underlying propositions are that I base my work and thinking on. One of them is that um, when you that everything you think you know about yourself, everything that you claim, everything that you say you're certain of, everything you jump up and down and say, This is true about me, it all derives from information in your brain. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to think it and you wouldn't be able to say it. It all derives from information in your brain, and that's very, very crucial. Uh, And the second assumption is that um, the information in the brain, the the brain builds information about things. That's what it does. It builds these models or bundles of information to describe things. These models are never accurate. They're always simplified, Uh, and sometimes they're wrong, but they're, you know, they're um, quick and dirty models. And so there's these two really simple assumptions. Everything you think you know about derives from information in your brain, and that information is always at least a little simplified, if not wrong in in some ways. And those those, I think those have good foundation. Uh, they're certainly, um, if you believe in basic science, you probably believe in those two things. Or if you believe in the basics of neuroscience, you probably believe in those two things. And from those, everything else flows. So I, I would say those, those sit at the at the basis. So when people say, I have a conscious experience, now you're stuck in that framework. People, uh, a, a person says that and believes that and is certain of that because there is information in the person's brain that is descriptive of that state. And that information is not going to be perfectly accurate. So right away you start getting into how, yes, it's explainable and it's not gonna be what uh, you think it is.
1: Mm. Uh, Yeah, I'd like to talk about these two assumptions more in depth. So models are never accurate and they're always simplified is a good example of this. I mean, I'm looking at my dog who, I don't know if there was squeaking in the background, but he picked up a turkey and and started a, a, a chew toy turkey and started squeezing it. But I see this brown furry thing, but what's really there presumably is some collection of atoms that I don't see. And so I have a very simplified model in my brain of what he is. Is that what you mean when you say that models are never accurate and that they don't perfectly represent what they're supposed to be representing?
0: I mean, that's absolutely a part of it, yes. Uh, It may even, there may even be, so yes, that's right. We don't see dogs or other objects as collections of atoms, Uh, but we don't even have to go down to the atomic level. Uh, You mentioned your dog is brown. Well, brown is a construct of the brain. There's no such thing as brown. There's no such thing as any color in the world. Uh, Instead, there's these uh, absurdly complicated mixtures of uh, electromagnetic wavelengths that we simplify and strip down and turn into these um, very simple color constructs. Like color doesn't exist in the world. That's a good example. Um, vision also has a way of simplifying the borders of objects. So what we see is a very crisp um, sort of the borders get gets smoothed and made much more uh, high contrast. Uh, So the world as we process it as a visual system reconstruction is not the visual world that's actually out there. Uh, And so on and so on. Those are some very simple examples. There are many, many other examples. I think it was the statistician George Box who said, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And I always, I like that quote, although I think he was talking about statistical models, but it's really the same principle
1: that we're Mm -hmm. And then the first principle that everything we think we know about ourselves is derived from information in the brain. Uh, Another, just to keep with this Brown example. So I think the more intuitive response that people would give is that everything we think we know about ourselves is derived from uh, things in the world outside of us. So I think my hair is Brown because I've seen my hair in the mirror, but based on what you just said, my hair isn't brown. That's already something that's just in my brain. So everything I think I know about myself comes from information in my brain rather than something external. Is that the the key point here?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that... Let's take the case of a of, of visual object like your hair or whatever it is. You look at something, you know, I, I like to use the examples of apples because somehow whenever I write, I start getting hungry. But anyway, uh, you have an apple, you're looking at it. Um, well, there is an apple. I mean, unless you're hallucinating, there's a real object. Uh, that real object does impact your brain. Uh, so the models, the information that your brain builds, those are dependent on the real object, right? So I'm not saying that the world doesn't exist. Like There are people who are um, solipsistic, who say there's no world, it's all in the head. This is not not what I'm saying, Uh, but there's a kind of stepwise process. So you start with the real object, let's say the apple. Then your brain builds a model of it in your visual system, which is simplified with color and shape and shiny surface and so on. That's a simplified model of the real thing. Then your cognition gets access to that simplified model. And now the things that you quote unquote know are dependent on that model. Mm-hmm. And then your speech uh is derived from your higher cognition. And so then you can talk about it and say, oh, it's an apple and it's red and it's round and so on. So there's a sequence from real object to model, to cognition, to speech. And uh, when you make a claim, when you say there's an apple, I know it's there, it's absolutely there. The claim is not directly dependent on the apple itself. There's a step in between. There's the brain's models that get built. That's that's the step in between. And that's really crucial because if you don't understand that, you won't understand things like illusions or hallucinations uh, or mistakes that uh, the brain can make. Right. So um, you can be absolutely certain that the apple's there even if it isn't. And if the apple really is there, but your brain has not made that model, then you won't know it's there. Right? So what you know, what you claim, what you believe always derives ultimately from that model. It's a um, that's the bottleneck. The model itself may be informed by the real world, so we won't deny that at all. Uh, but um whatever it is that you claim about the world outside or about yourself, um ultimately has to pass through these models, these information bundles that that the brain constructs..
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe I. Um, either misinterpreted the first principle or my, my question doesn't just wasn't clear. But I was asking about why everything we think about ourselves is derived from information in the brain. Uh, the cru- crucial word here being ourselves and what the alternative would be.
0: So... I don't think there is an alternative. I think it's logically necessary. It has to be true. If you believe in a brain, if you believe in neuroscience, then that's that's how brains work. And I don't think it is just about ourselves. Uh, anything, anything you say and think, <laughs> anything you believe, uh, you're saying because there's information in your brain that leads you to say that. I mean, this just necessarily has to be true. Uh, and, and it's such an obvious principle. It's easy to look at and say, yeah, of course it's true. Why, why bother to point it out? But note how easy it is for people to forget it. Um, In the case of, for example, um, consciousness, right? People will say, I believe and I have consciousness because I do. Um, I know I have consciousness because I have it. Um, But actually if you believe it and quote-unquote know it and insist on it, it's because somewhere in your brain is information that's telling your higher cognition that you have it. So there's a bundle of information that is essentially a description of what consciousness is and is telling you that you have it. It's information. And those bundles of information are never accurate. They're always simplified. So now we have an interesting case (laughs) because maybe you do have something. um, that is sort of similar to consciousness, but it's not going to be what you think you have, just like the apple in real in the real world is not the apple that you think is there.
1: Hmm. Is another assumption here possibly that uh, consciousness is at a higher level than everything that's going on in the brain and that these two things aren't ever, I guess, simultaneous or at the same level?
0: Well, I don't think I make that assumption. There may be people who do, um, but um, uh, I don't think that's that's a component here. It's so there's a very, very it's um, yeah, I I don't think so. So uh, it, there's essentially um at the heart of much at the heart of almost all philosophy of consciousness, almost all of it. there's uh, there's a claim, there's a line of reasoning which is circular, actually. And it goes like this. Um, I know the experience is there because I'm experiencing it. Right? I know it's real. I know it's there because I'm experiencing it. Okay? And that seems very powerful to people. Um, But the problem is it's circular because what you're saying is, I know A is true because A is true, right? You're 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 putting forward experiencedness as evidence for experiencedness. You're saying I know experiencedness is is true because experiencedness is true. It's it's a it's a circle, and um, indicative of a of a basically a computing machine that's stuck in a in a um, processing loop. Right. So what's the solution to it? The solution to it is exactly what I've been talking about. You quote unquote, no, you believe that you have experience because there's information in your brain that tells you that you do. It's the only way that can happen. It's the only way you know anything at all ever, because <laughs> there's information in your brain that tells you that you have it. Why does your brain have that information? For the same reason the brain builds any bundle of information, because it's useful. It's probably a useful, but very inexact, um, simplified description of something else. Right. So now we have a very simple account of the thing. There's something. We don't know yet. We don't have to worry yet about what it is. I mean, I think we have good ideas for it. But there's something that the brain is building a model of, and that model then leads you to claim to have an essentially magical property inside of you. Uh, and I would say that's the same thing as color. We talked about color. You know, you look around and you say, there's red, there's green. I know it's there. Well, actually, there isn't red or green, but there is something. There's something way more complicated <laughs> and way more physically specific, this uh, mixture of wavelengths. And then the brain builds a simplified model of it, and then your cognition gets hold of that model, and then you claim that this is absolutely true. Uh, And this is the, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only logical explanation for this consciousness stuff is that there's something there that's really complicated and specific and physical and understandable at some level, probably. Then the brain builds a simplified model of it that's um, highly uh, simplified and inexact, And then your cognition gets hold of that simplified model. And then you claim, it's absolutely true. I have a magic essence inside of my head. Uh, And that's the process that's going on there.
1: Hmm. So just to try to clarify for my own understanding again, before we move on, I mentioned earlier, I think this property of model-based knowledge that underlies all of the stuff that I think we're going to be talking about. So it's the idea that, Everything we know stems from, so my dog being brown. I say that my dog is brown because my brain is modeling the dog and then my consciousness, my cognition gets hold of that, as you put it, and then says, okay, I know that my dog is brown. And then consciousness is just one specific example of this. My brain is modeling something. It gets hold of my, my cognition gets hold of it. And then I say, I know that I'm conscious. I know that I'm aware.
0: Yeah, you have a subjective experience. That's what you're saying to yourself. And that's based on some self-description, some model of of your internal processes.
1: Mm-hmm. And models, I mean, maybe we should say more about what models are. They're not just visual. They're not just auditory. I mean, what are the constraints on what a model can be? Or
0: Yeah, it's... it's in a sense, actually a fairly sloppy term because it can refer to a huge range of things. So you can have sensory models, as you um, just mentioned, <clears throat> and sensory models uh, are usually automatic as you can't help them. As long as your eyes are open, your visual system is building models of the world. And you. it's not like you have an internal choice over what to model out there. Your brain just does it. Um, but you can also have models... Um, like, um, well, we talked about the body schema.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that.
0: Yeah. So that's a model of your body. It's not a sensory model. It can be informed by the sense of touch and so on, but you actually don't even need that. You can still build a model. Uh, and that's, that's also automatic. And we know that because um, people who have amputations have phantom limbs and they can't help it. And the phantom limb is the brain building a model of the missing limb. And it's just there. (laughs) And you're like, I wish that were not there. I wish I could, you know, choose to make it go away because it itches. This is actually a big problem with phantom limbs. Um, But your brain automatically builds that model of a thing. uh, And the model is not terribly accurate. I mean, if you believe the model, uh, you know, the person with the phantom limb says, uh, if, if that person, like, um, uh, so um, Lord Nelson, that was it. Lord Nelson lost an arm in, in, a, in a battle and uh, he had a phantom limb and um, he believed in the phantom. Right. And so he said, therefore, ghosts exist because my arm has a ghost. Therefore, a whole person can have a ghost. Right. So that's an example of somebody literally believing in the in the a model. But the model, of course, is not accurate, especially in that case. It's a total fabrication. There's no actual limb there. The model created a depiction of something that isn't really true. Uh, but he literally believed it to be true. And he said, no, I have a ghost arm. Um, so, yeah. But models can, can stretch all the way up to the highest levels of cognitive models where people do have uh, control, voluntary control over what they're thinking and how they imagine things and so on. So There's quite a range of models. This kind of model that I'm talking about for um, the model that gives us our belief that we have a magic subjective experience. I think that one's more like the body schema. I think it's automatic. Uh, I think it's constructed by parts of the brain deep beneath higher cognition, and we have no cognitive control over it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You said that we only have rough ideas of the information going into the model of consciousness that cognition gets hold of. But just to better see how this might look, do we have a fuller picture of the neural basis of the body schema?
0: Yes and no. Uh, So the body schema, we know what parts of the brain control movement. And we know what parts of the brain take in sensory information from the arm, from touching the arm and from joint angles and so on. Uh, and somewhere in there, it's actually quite a large chunk of the cerebral cortex that encompasses those two things. Somewhere in there, the body schema is lurking. And there may be parts of that where it's more represented than others. There's some parts of the brain in the parietal lobe, so kind of in the backish up, upper parts of the brain, where um, there may be more representation of body schema. And, and that's kind of based on on damage people with stroke damage, who have severe body schema issues. Uh, but it's probably a bit distributed. It's it's not 100% clear, uh, despite now uh, more than 100 years of research on the body schema.
1: Hmm. So I, I guess moving on now more to, to focus specifically on consciousness, one, one last more conceptual question before we get to the attention schema theory. Am I right in understanding that you think that the hard problem of consciousness as, as Chalmers puts it is, so is illusory and the easy problem, which is not easy is what has to be solved to have a, maybe a quote unquote, full theory of consciousness.
0: Right. Well, uh, and I've talked to Chalmers about this a lot and he has, um, I think is I think his thinking has evolved
1: a bit over time. Uh,
0: so the hard problem is how is it that we get experiencedness
1: out of something purely physical? It just it seems like a category um, error. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's very weird.
0: The thing about experiencedness, as people conceive of it, it has no physical attributes. Right, it's a thing, but you can't break it and measure its um, resistance to breaking, and you can't heat it up and measure at what temperature it combusts and and things like that. You can't break it down and figure out what its atomic elements are. It has no physicality to it, but it's there uh, according to the way people conceptualize it. So it's very mysterious. That's the hard problem, experiencedness itself. The easy problem is more like the things that we are conscious of, Right. So for Chalmers, the easy problem is like, well, how do you have a memory system and how do you make decisions, i.e. choose A over B um, and so on. So the easy problem is the stuff that you can be conscious of sometimes and perhaps not other times. It's, it's cognitive processes. But consciousness is the sort of extra magic essence that sometimes comes in and gloms on to some of the things in the brain. Um, So that's the hard versus the easy problem. Um, Chalmers has also described what he calls the meta problem. And that he wrote a much more recent paper really expanding on the meta problem. And the meta problem, as he describes it, is why is it that people think there's a hard problem? Like, why does a brain say, oh, my God, there's a hard problem and there's a mysterious essence inside of me? Why does he even think there's a hard problem? Right. And so the meta problem, it's not the easy problem. It's not the hard problem. It's, well, it's the meta problem. Um, and I would say that the meta problem is the only problem of consciousness. That's the one to solve. Uh, and you solve that and then that, that's the answer. So just to give an example, there was a time before Newton figured out that white was a mixture of all colors. Right. There was a time, presumably, when people looked at white light and they said, white light is so pure, it's so, you know, godly and angelic. And colored light is contaminated and dirty. And, you know, like the yellow got contaminated in with the white and the green over here, some green stuff got mixed in with the white. But if you could um, strip out all the contaminants, then you'd have pure white. So here's a hard problem how do you purify light? and strip the contaminants away and turn it into pure white light. That's a hard problem, uh, a la Chalmers. It's a hard problem because it's predicated on um, a simplified, incorrect model that the brain builds about what color and wavelength are. Uh, and it has no answer because it's an ill-posed problem because white light isn't a purified version of colored light. So there's it's it literally impossible to find the answer to it, and it's based on a false understanding. And the reason why the understanding is false is because the brain evolved a simplified, quick-and-dirty, easy model of a uh, light spectrum. Uh, so you can, you can spend... <laughs> a thousand lifetimes trying to answer the hard problem of how white light gets purified you will never get the answer ever never because there is no answer and the only answer is to recognize uh to is the meta the meta question the the a meta problem which is why do people think that white light is pure and the reason is cuz we have a model built into us that we cannot help that that um reconstructs wavelengths in a particular way that encodes white as without color, even though it's a mixture of all these other uh, wavelengths. right? And so that's what's going on here. I think when you look at consciousness, the hard problem is will never, ever be solved because it's ill-posed. And the real question is, why do people think there's a hard problem? And the answer is because people are uh, relying on a model that their brain constructs deep under the... Uh, Level of higher cognition, the brain constructs this self-descriptive model, which is essentially telling us that we have this magic essence in us. And the model's not accurate. It's just not accurate. It's not totally false. I mean, there's something there, but the model's depicting it in a way that's so stripped down and so um, quick and dirty that uh, so simplified that we mistakenly think we have this these impossible magic essences inside
2: of us.
1: The, the the notion of the meta problem raises a, a meta meta problem for me, which is what sort of form the answer should even take that we would find satisfactory. So one way of answering the the meta problem might be to say, well, if we don't believe that we have this essence in us, if we don't think we're special, then why live if we're just inert matter like everything else but my my guess would be that your the way what you would find to be a satisfactory answer would be to explain it with reference one to neural mechanisms so explaining what's underlying this automatic model building and then two to give an evolutionary story for why that would prove beneficial to have evolved is that did that make sense to you
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that um, I would love to have an answer to both of those. We have hypotheses. We have what we think are really good hypotheses for both of those. Uh, And I think you're right. There's this other, this kind of uh, um, question of, uh, uh, I guess, a moral question, if that's the right word for it. It's the question of what should we do? Uh, So if we find that there is if it turns out that there is it, it is no magic in the head <laughs> and um could it be that we have the we believe we have magic because if we didn't we'd all get depressed and jump off cliffs right um I mean in a sense that's an evolutionary argument because if we all jumped off cliffs we wouldn't be alive those genes would die out and so the argument is somehow we evolved to have this belief because without it we'd all be um unable to survive. Uh, I guess I don't think that's true. I think that's kind of silly. I think there are lots and lots of people who do perfectly well um, without these beliefs in magic. And I would argue that the mechanisms at play are present in more than just people. Uh, I mean, you mentioned your dog and your cat. I think they have the same mechanisms in them. I don't think they... They care at all. <laughs> I don't think they care a rat's behind about whether there's magic in the world or not, or whether, you know, the world is just materialist or not. I don't think that matters to them. But I think they have the same mechanisms and some of the same kinds of self-models.
1: Right. I mean, even if we answered the meta question and there is no magical essence as you expect or suspect, because the process is automatic, we can know we can't just stop feeling like It's in essence the same way that we can't stop seeing the dog as brown, even if we recognize that there is no brown. We're just inherently value-based in a sense. Like I can't not think of food as good or bad, even if I know that there's no such thing as good or bad out there in the world, independent of me.
0: I think that's right. So one of the things that I have tried to emphasize, again, using the analogy of white light, uh, which we now know is not pure and clean and, you know, stripped of contaminants. Um, if you're an educated person, you walk around today with essentially two contradictory concepts of white in your head. And I'm talking about the color white, of course, <laughs> but um you, you walk around with these two contradictory concepts and one is a scientific and the other is an aesthetic concept. And we and we just deal with the fact that They're not compatible with each other, but we're fine with it. The scientific concept is white is a mixture of all these wavelengths in the visible spectrum. Uh, It's not that you take out wavelengths and then what's left over is white. That's not what it is. We understand that because we've learned it in school. And the other concept is that white has a sort of cleanness to it. Um, that we still culturally associate it with things like, you know, uh, brides wear white because it's supposed to be pure and um, white, clean white paper. And we paint our walls white to look nice and clean and so on and so on. We still think of it in a certain aesthetic way and we still see it in a certain way because we can't help it because our brains are built that way and we don't have cognitive control over it. We can't help it. We're genetically built that way. Uh, and so, yeah, I think people walk around with these two totally different conceptions of what white is, um, and they're and they've just got over it. I mean, when Newton first proposed his theory of white and color, it outraged people, and they couldn't believe it, and it was horrible. And he, and, um, he almost couldn't get his paper published in the Royal Society, and he became very controversial, and he was actually quite bitter about it, apparently. But uh, but nowadays nobody cares. There's like, yeah, sure. There's these two. Essentially conflicting um, views, but we don't even notice they're conflicting because we're so used to having both of them in our heads. And I think that's just what it is with consciousness. I think you're absolutely right that you can understand scientifically that there's no magic and that it's the result of self models and information processing. That doesn't make it go away. It's still there. We still have those models. Uh, our perspective on the world is still the perspective mm-hmm. of of a person who's certain that we have subjective experience and magic and so on. And that will never go away.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, that's, that's good. It's good to keep that in mind that um, no matter what we get out of the theory, we can't expect that we're going to feel any different because then that would be an impossible hurdle to, to traverse. But I I already mentioned, I'd like to, to get more into the weeds now that we've, uh, you humored me with all this context, but so the attention schema theory, maybe we should start with how as a neuroscientist, you think of attention and its function for the brain.
0: Right. So that's a good point. So attention is a very commonly used word, obviously. Uh, and not only does it have colloquial, uh, definitions, but even in science, so many different people use it in different ways that it gets very dicey. And, um, Excuse me. If if you look back at the history, approximately a hundred year history of work on attention, you go back to William James, who wrote about attention in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, and then it has been studied ever since quite intensively. And um, uh, so, attention, colloquially, usually means the thing we're looking at. Or it means the one single thing that we're most focused on. That's usually how people think about attention. But neither of those is quite right for uh, a neuroscientist or a psychologist. Um, So first of all, you can pay attention to things that you're not looking directly at. Actually, you can pay attention to things that you're not seeing at all. I mean, you can be listening to a conversation in the other room and focusing your attention on it. And you can be gazing up at the ceiling while attending to really focusing your attention on your um, memory of something that happened yesterday, trying to remember, what exactly did he say to me? And you're thinking about it, and your attention is really focused internally, even though your eyes are fixed on something else. Um, And in fact, you can even be talking to somebody, looking at them, eyes on the other person, But actually, you're really listening as hard as you can to what someone else is saying, or you're trying really hard to see somebody else sneak up on you without breaking eye contact with the person you're supposed to be talking to. So attention can be totally dissociated from where your pupils, where your foveas are pointed. Um, And um, attention can be dissociated from vision, and you can attend to a lot of different things. So you can attend a little bit to this and that and a little more to this and a little less to that. It's like a lumpy profile. You can attend externally. You can attend internally. So where does that leave us? It means that really attention means signal enhancement. It means that of all the signals running around through your brain, some are enhanced at the expense of others in some kind of complicated profile of uh, peaks and valleys of signals being boosted and suppressed a little bit. That's what attention is. It's a mechanism for um, shepherding and channeling information by boosting some of it and suppressing the rest of it. So it's a very general mechanism. It seems to be particularly enhanced in the cerebral cortex, so this massive part of the brain that grew so much in mammals and in people in particular. Um, and, um, And it's a crucial part of how we see and how we hear but also how we think how we focus our minds on particular um, questions and particular problems and thoughts um and how we move because we pay attention to specific acts that we're performing so uh, attention is another way to put it is um allocating processing power
1: Hmm. and right and i'm wondering then it it, am i right that in thinking that attention can then be operationalized with brain scans by finding where in the brain cognitive resources are being deployed, and that's one way you might go about studying it?
0: So when you do scan the brain, you look for attention signals. Um, Well, you find them all over. For example, in visual cortex, if you're paying attention to a part of the visual world, you're like, focus over here on the upper right quadrant of your visual world uh you will find more activity in the maps in the brain in the place that represents that upper right quadrant uh and and so on when you're really focusing your attention on something else on on a sound you'll find auditory areas become more active and so on so yes attention uh enhances signals wherever the relevant brain area is and there seem to be some brain areas that um help coordinate that so they're generalized, involved in attention, no matter what the modality or domain, there's sort of a network or several networks that seem to be in helping to control and move attention from thing to thing.
2: Hmm.
1: So there are brain areas that coordinate it. Am I right? I mean, this is taking us on a tangent, but it's very interesting that it might be some problem with this area or these areas that result in conditions like ADD.
0: Yes. so Nobody really understands ADD. Um, My vague understanding of the clinical uh, neurological side to it is there may be something going on in some of the subcortical circuitries, like the basal ganglia, that connect to the cortex and help it function correctly. And that might be part of um, ADD. But it is certainly true that when you have damage to these central networks that control attention, you get uh, attention um, problems. You can have severe problems. You can have problems like attention won't go to one side of space and it always gets pulled over to the other side. Um, so you can have all kinds of odd problems. You can have problems with attention where it's very hard to disengage your attention from one thing and get it to something else. Uh, so you can, you can have weird problems in attention when those central networks that control it or deploy attention are um, not functioning correctly
1: Hmm. i i mean this is still totally tangential but i've done a couple of episodes recently with uh, a neuroscientist and then a behavioral geneticist on intelligence and one of the things that came up i'm not sure with who was that attention is one crucial component of intelligence maybe crucial is a bit hyperbolic, but people that are able to focus on tasks very deliberately will score better on IQ tests. And I'm wondering if this provides, I guess, another sort of neural basis for intelligence that people who have these governors that are much more efficient and active might be, I mean, more intelligent in the, I mean, not, this isn't general intelligence, but more intelligent in this one dimension. But I know this isn't your area.
0: Well, I would be even more hyperbolic. And I would say that attention is the single most crucial property that allows any brain to be intelligent. Oh, really? Hm. Because attention is about efficient use of resources. right? If you deeply processed everything that came in, and every signal and memory and thought in your head. Uh, In order to do anything with any efficacy, you would need a brain the size of a planet. But instead, we have a system that's really good at allocating and uh, figuring out no attention on those, yes on this, now I better switch it to this, that can focus in and put resources uh, such that you can deeply process crucial things and not others that's what allows you to have a limited set of um neural tissue a limited amount that fits in like 3 pounds of it that fits in your head and yet it can really profoundly deeply process some things very very intelligently it is not only it so it, i'll give you an example of how attention is the difference between um extremely stupid chaotic systems and intelligent systems uh and it has to do with artificial intelligence. So right now, as most people know, we're in this weird explosion of artificial intelligence. Uh, we have chat GPT, which can suddenly talk uh, and, and interact in real sentences, and people mock it for being maybe not quite the most uh, conversationally brilliant, but the um, the level of improvement over... Two or three years ago is mind-boggling. Uh, the intelligence is going up. Why? Why has artificial intelligence in general suddenly gone through an explosion right now that it didn't go through before? And the reason is one and only one thing: attention. The the um, algorithms for at least some kinds of attention were figured out. Uh, they're called transformers. Uh, but they're a particular kind of attention that uh, enhances some signals over others. That's the whole point of Transformers. They enhance some signals over others, thereby channeling these signals through the network. Uh, and um, with the advent of artificial attention, suddenly, kaboom, these neural networks became geniuses compared to what they were before, right? That's just a very simple demonstration of how attention is the core, the central core of how brains work.
1: Mm-hmm. No, this is pulling a few things together for me because I did an interview with Jay McClelland of, um, for our listeners who haven't heard that episode, one of the the fathers of neural networks. And we talked about transformers a bit, particularly in the context of when artificial intelligence systems will surpass scientists. And one of the things that makes scientists so uh, intellectually powerful is their ability to continually and doggedly pay attention to particular problems and try and try again and have this long-term thinking that artificial intelligence systems don't have. But another thing that you said is that attention is about, I I think you said, it it sounded like the definition of economics. It's about the um, efficient allocation of resources. But that was one of the hypotheses of, I think, the neuroscientist I spoke to, uh, Richard Heyer, about intelligence that an intelligent brain is an an efficient brain uh, measured by like glucose uptake with fMRI and things like that. But okay. This has been a very, very uh, fun uh, tangent. Let, did you have anything to add? To this? No, no, that's, that's good. We're good. Okay. That's good. That's good. Well then what is the, the connection between attention and awareness and then self-awareness?
0: Okay. So we've talked a lot about how in the view that I take, which I think is the only possible rational view when you really think about it, in the view that I take, uh, we claim to have these kinds of conscious experience magic inside of us because there's some kind of model in the brain telling us that we have that. There's some kind of bundle of information. And that bundle of information is a description. It's the brain's description of something. But it's so simplified that when we talk about it, we describe it as kind of an inner magic. Well, what is the real thing that's being depicted in the particular theory that I have been, my lab has been outlining for the past 10 years. It's called the attention schema theory. The real thing is attention. So the real physical thing that could be described physically but is very, very complicated is that the brain allocates resources and deeply processes a thing, like the apple, to go back to the apple example, the brain looks at that apple, takes in visual information about it and deeply processes and um, allocates a, a lot of resources to that apple, to figuring out what it is and where it is and what to do with it and what it means and context and so on. That's attention. The brain then builds a model of its own attentional relationship to the apple. And that model is a simplified depiction of attention. And in the model, what the model says is, ah, you have a kind of non-physical magical experience that has glommed onto the apple. Your, Your mind has taken possession of the apple. You are now able to make choices with respect to the apple and and know what it is and remember it and think about it. Um, That's what that model is telling us. And then higher cognition uh, gets hold of information from that model and says, aha, I am conscious of the apple. I have a conscious experience of it. And then we report that verbally. That's the theory. It's, It's basically an identification that says, okay the real thing there is a real thing a real physical thing that is being described by this model that then makes us say we have conscious experience but the real thing is attention uh that's that's the theory and the theory is based partly because it makes a certain amount of rational sense um but also there's oodles of data there's a hundred years worth of data where people have looked at this and scratched their heads and said isn't it weird that the things that our brains focus attention on almost always match the things that we say we have a conscious experience of
2: mhm
0: you know those two things are almost always together you have to work really hard in a lab to break them apart and make the brain make a mistake but otherwise they they go together so that's That's the relationship.
1: So talking about hard work in the lab, are there any crucial sort of experiments that you've run that helped you develop this theory? Um,
0: Well, the the theory came about from looking at prior literature mostly. Okay. But we have done a lot of studies since then. And, um, and what we find is that uh, indeed what you, what your brain focuses attention on, and what you claim to be have a conscious experience of, almost always match. Where they don't match, i.e., let's say you have really dim stimuli, or you mask them a little bit with flashy lights and things like that. Uh, so maybe the at the edges of what the brain can process, uh, things break down. And the brain can actually allocate attention to something. But you'll say, I didn't see it. I wasn't conscious of it. Like You can get those situations. They've been known for a while. Um, it takes some work to construct them. But when you do that, what you're really doing is making the model fail. Right. So you're paying attention to something, but the brain's not building a model that says, I'm paying attention to it. So it's like paying attention to it without knowing that you are, without knowing that you're conscious of it. And that's a very interesting situation to us. Um, and uh, we've done a lot of experiments looking at that particular situation and what's, what functions are preserved and what functions break down. So um, that's one of the many lines of research that we think uh, you know supports this whole framework.
1: Mm-hmm. There are also many illusions of our being conscious of things that we aren't. So, you mentioned speaking a lot to Daniel Dennett. He has this example that I love so much, where if you hold a, a playing card like at the periphery of your vision, you can't tell what color it is, what color the the suit is, even though you have the sense that you see color everywhere. You only see color in this very narrow window of your field of vision and you realize that you have to, if you bring this playing card closer and closer to uh, your fovea, I I don't know. I guess the fovea is a part of your eye. It's not, it's not this place out there. Um, It's
0: It's the central, central vision.
1: Yes. If you, you have to bring it very close to your central, central area of vision to actually be able to tell that there is in fact color for color to actually enter your awareness that's that's right that's right yeah mm-hmm. so but go oh, ahead. go on no you, you please okay i was gonna say so crucially
0: there's a there's a component to this theory so now we're going to get slightly more complicated maybe but there's a component to this theory that is really crucial that's beyond just am i conscious of a thing am i conscious of this am i conscious of that um and that is how I see other people and in humans, at least uh, consciousness is used not just personally, but socially. And so I perceive consciousness in you. Uh, that's how we can have a nice conversation. And I perceive consciousness in, you know, dogs and cats even. because and It's also automatic. Yes, it's automatic. Uh, it's absolutely right. And so What we suspect is that the same mechanisms are at work and they work in exactly the same way. I look at you, uh, your body language and your eyes and your speech and manner so on tells me that you're probably paying attention to something. Um, In this case, you're paying attention to me, but maybe you're paying attention to the sandwich or the donut or whatever it is. And I look at you and I figure that out. Well, Attention is a really complicated thing if you really look at actual um, neurophysiological attention, right? But I don't build an accurate model of your attention, right? I don't say to myself, aha, his neurons are processing the donut, but there's a competition among signals and the neurons and the donut signal has arisen up and is now dominance in his frontal parietal networks, right? That's not what's going on in my brain. Instead, something much simpler, a much simpler model is being constructed, a quick and dirty, simple model that says, aha, he is conscious of the donut. Aha, he is not conscious of the sandwich over there, but he is conscious of the donut. Or aha, he's not conscious of the puddle. He's going to walk into it. I better tell him about it, right? So these are very, very simple models that we construct of other people, we attribute conscious states to other people uh as a proxy for their attentional state. Right. So it's the same, it's the same mechanism. And um and that too, we uh one can collect data. We have a lot of data on how people attribute attention and consciousness to others.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And from reading the literature on folk psychology, I have the sense that One of the reasons we developed this ability in in seeing others to to attribute mental states to them is that it would be extremely difficult to live in social groups if we couldn't tell, oh, he wants to hurt me. Anyway, the, the question though that this raises for me is which came first? Did we develop models of attention for ourselves and then attribute them to others or did it go the other way around or did it happen in sync?
0: I would say almost certainly we evolved self models first because I don't see how we could function in any way without self models. But then having adapted that same machinery to build models of others, I think, think probably there's an evolutionary um, resonance or a, a interaction where evolving better models of others helps to evolve better models of self. And likewise, so there's probably some co-evolution of both of those. But the very first models are probably self-models.
1: Right. I, I know that some animals, it's been a few years since I was reading about this, but they've done research on I guess it wouldn't be it would be called chimpanzee folk psychology rather than human folk psychology but chimpanzees and I know you've worked a lot on primates have a a primitive theory of mind about other people and primates and I would wonder if this coincides with the same animals that might recognize themselves in a mirror or that have I guess higher degrees of self awareness, though. I don't I don't know how you might study this. So um theory of mind is
0: really tricky. There are some tests of theory of mind that are really, in my view, overly stringent. Actually I don't think my view is all that uh rare. I think a lot of people look at these view these tests of theory of mind. So, you know, the classic one is the Sally Ann test, which goes like this. Sally puts her toy in a Covered basket, basket A, but there's basket B next to it. Sally goes away. and being devious, takes the toy out of basket A, puts it in basket B, and covers the two baskets. Sally comes back. Which basket will she look in first for her toy? Well, if you have theory of mind and you understand baskets and so on, then you say, oh, she'll look in basket A because that's where she put it. She thinks it's there. Uh, if you don't have theory of mind, you might say, oh, she'll look in basket B because that's where it is. Right, but if you understand that Aunt, and that Sally has a mind and that her mind contains a false belief, then you can figure out this and that. Right, so that's the stringent test, and it turns out that children before the age of I don't know about six or five or something can't solve the task, um, and most animals can't. Chimpanzees can to some degree, I think crows uh, can to some degree, uh, but it's a really complicated. It's like it's like a shell game. It's like baskets and this and that and toys and blah, 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 and one time and then another time. is really cognitively complicated. Uh, And not many animals can keep track of all those moving variables. Uh, But most mammals and probably most birds have some form of theory of mind in the sense that they can probably figure out what you're paying attention to. And they can probably know at some intuitive level that when you're paying attention to something, it means that you can react to it. And when you're not paying attention, it means you're not going to react to it. And most animals, like a prey animal has to know that because you look at the lion and you're like, well, is he paying attention to me or not? Does he even know I'm here or not? This is really important. Uh, And if you're a predator, you have to know if I sneak up on him this way, he won't know I'm here. And if he doesn't know I'm here, it's not in his mind. And then he won't react until he sees me. And then it'll be too late. You know, these very basic kinds of uh, theory of mind, knowing that something else has a mind and that items can get into that mind. And that's how the animal behaves like that. That's very basic theory of mind. Uh, I think that's present in most mammals, most birds. And so my guess is that most mammals and most birds have at least the elements of, basic elements of what we mean when we talk about uh, consciousness, the ability to be conscious of things and the ability to attribute conscious states to others. To some degree, these animals have that. Some obviously way more complex than others.
1: Hmm. You know, something that hasn't come up yet in the conversation, that I wonder if this might pose a problem for the theory, but or or maybe it's already an answer that you have is how it accounts for affect. So, uh, I mean, sadness or happiness—they seem to fall like on a bl- like a blanket over everything we're experiencing. They're every—it's not like you have to pay attention to it. It's just, it's just there. But m- maybe the way that you would explain it is there is something in the brain that cognition is getting hold of that's being modeled but it just everything we're paying attention to is sort of drenched in it in a sense I'm not being very specific here but
0: yeah yeah I know I know what you mean so emotions really interesting uh first of all not that much is known about it So, it's a bit mysterious to everybody, even the people who study it. Um, But here's an interesting property of emotions that is perhaps not that well appreciated by most people, unless you really have this kind of experience frequently. People do have the uh, people pay attention or they don't pay attention to their emotions. So you can, emotions are things that you can pay attention to, that you can be aware of or not aware of. This is really weird, but there are many people who are essentially not, quote unquote, in touch with their emotions. And so they can have an emotional state like anger and not know it until someone points it out. And someone says, man, what are you in a really angry mood? And they're like, what, me? What? Oh, maybe I am. You have to direct their attention to it. Uh, so a lot of emotions are not uh are pre-attentive we're not aware of them but they're there um and so even in the case of emotions uh just like with vision I mean it's it's a it's not exactly like but there's there's some similarities there in vision you look at something it has a color but you know nothing about the color unless you're attending to it then you can become conscious of it and with emotions there's something being processed there's some kind of Emotion model that the brain is building, but you're really not conscious of it until at least some of your attention is on it, on the the fact that you feel that way or that it's uh, coloring your decision-making process, right? So it actually there is a lot of similarity there uh, between emotions and uh, I think probably everyone uh, has emotions in and out of conscious experience. It's just that we're not used to thinking of it that way, and it's probably people more on the Detach from their emotions spectrum that are more familiar with that kind of situation. But they're very similar. I think the biggest difference between emotions and visual processing is that so much more is known about visual processing. It's just a lot easier to talk about scientifically. Uh, and the, on the emotional side, the mechanisms are so mysterious. The brain parts are are barely uh, known and how they talk to each other is not well known.
1: No, I'm, I'm very glad that you pointed out that you can pay attention to your emotions and there are people who aren't aware of them and it presumably still comes out in their behavior. And that was something that I had not considered at all, especially in asking that question.
0: Yeah. I think that's the crucial answer to it. Yeah.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Now getting, uh, I guess, a little bit more nitty and gritty, I understand that there are, are two main regions of the brain that are involved in this theory. I think, I've never spoken these words out loud, but the superior temporal s- sulcus. And then the, I'm not going to, I don't remember what it, the words are, but the TPJ.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. And how do they function in the theory?
0: Yeah. So this is a theory that is in a sense, agnostic about brain area. Uh, I mean, it could be anywhere in the brain, um, uh, but yeah, um, and it could be that the same theory operates in different brains differently. I mean the same concepts but implemented in different places. Um so there are theories that are very specific to a particular brain area, theories that say, for example, consciousness is the result of a particular shape of neuron, which happens here in this brain area. And uh, but in this this theory, this attention schema theory, uh, could be anywhere. But there is this question okay then can we find can we find where in the human brain at least where in the human brain do people build models of attention like when I look at you and try to understand your state of attention what parts of the brain are lighting up uh, when you ask me about my own state of attention uh what areas of the brain start lighting up more than usual um and there are these crucial areas and it's there's been a long series of experiments in my lab. Uh, and, and in other labs, trying to pinpoint those networks of areas in the brain. Um, and yeah, uh, one of them is the TPJ, or the temporoparietal junction. So it's the junction between the temporal lobe and, and the parietal lobe. And um, that seems to be a really crucial area. Um, there are other areas uh, that seem to be involved in this process, and and one of them is in the um, superior temporal sulcus which is nearby and another one is on the midline of the brain in the front it's called the dorsomedial uh, prefrontal cortex Uh, so all these long jawbreaker names of of brain areas and they they tend to light up either when you're monitoring or keeping track of someone else's attention or when you're monitoring and keeping track of your own attention
1: and maybe this is a, another tangent but i was speaking to a graduate student in neuroscience this weekend and we were talking about her work in language and if somebody's brain is damaged when they're very young or they're they're born missing certain portions of their brain another part of the brain will take over linguistic faculties and i'm wondering if you happen to have studied um, people who are missing these areas of the brain, or if they're damaged, do other part. what happens? Do other parts of the brain take over or what happens? I mean, you indicated people who, or you mentioned people who don't perceive half of space when one portion of the brain is damaged.
0: Yeah. So it is certainly true that when you're very young, uh, the brain's just amazingly plastic and and rewires um, I mean, it's already in the process of wiring itself up and it sort of wires around the damage in absolutely amazing ways. Um, and we have not studied de- the development of these systems. And so we we don't know what happens in, in children. Um, I imagine that it's very adaptable and very plastic. In adults, when you have damage, for example, to this TPJ area, which is kind of right above the ears and about an inch in, if you damage that, Um, you get severe, long-lasting symptoms. And so if you damage it on the right side, particularly where it's kind of larger and uh, the activity you find there is always much more um, intense, Uh, there is some on the left side, but it's uh, larger on the right side. If you damage it on the right side, you're right, you get these uh, people who neglect the left side of space. They're, They're not aware. Not only are they not aware of objects on the left side of space, they're not aware that there is a left side of space
1: and of course they're still processing it visually
0: yes they're processing it visually the visual areas of the brain are active um, if you do something like throw a a, a tennis ball at them they'll duck um, if you show them a picture they can even respond in certain ways to what's on the left without knowing that they're responding
1: like if they see a, a massacre happening on the left, even though they might not say it's happening or register awareness, they might be sad or, or traumatized, something like this.
0: It, so the classic study is the um, the house with flames coming out the windows on the left. And then you ask the person, uh, do you see anything odd about that house? And they're like, no, it looks like a perfectly normal house to me. And then you ask them, would you like to live there? And they say, no, I don't know. <laughs> it creeps me out. I don't like that house. Oh, and so you show them a normal house without the flames and they're like, okay I like that one better right so it's really odd but um this is the um of all deficits of of consciousness in the literature this is the the purest, the cleanest right so it's uh, the processing is there the consciousness is missing and um and it's from damaging largely this one spot this crucial spot that seems to be building models of attention, your own and other people's.
1: Are there other neural correlates of self-awareness beyond uh, these three regions that you've mentioned?
0: Well, so let's parse for a moment, self-awareness versus awareness. Um, In my view, I think probably shared by, many people, there's not really a fundamental difference between self-awareness and awareness of
1: an apple. It's just maybe a a different sensory way of probing.
0: Well, it's just that the thing you're being aware of is different in those two cases. So, you know, to be aware of an apple versus to be aware of um, a pin poking my arm, those are just two different things that you can be aware of. Uh, likewise, to be aware of myself, that's just a different object to be aware of, right? So in all of those cases, there's an object that you're processing, and then there's the act of being conscious of it. And so the conscious consciousness part is really the same, whether it's self-consciousness or consciousness of an external thing and so on. So uh, I, I wouldn't make a fundamental distinction between those things. Um, but uh, but you had a question about, about it that has slipped my mind already.
1: Other neural correlates of awareness. So neural correlates
0: of consciousness have been really tricky. There's this whole world of thought about it that said, essentially, we don't know what it is. It's a mysterious magic that floats in the head, and we can't measure it. But maybe we can find something in the brain that correlates with it. Uh, And that's been really tricky. The reason is that the best correlate is speech. You ask someone, were you conscious of it? And then you get an answer. That's all other measures uh, come down to that. All other measures depend on that. Then you can start asking, well, can we find a measure that correlates with that? Like, can we find a sort of lit up part of the brain that's active in the condition when people say, oh, I saw it? But that part of the brain is is quiet when people say, "Oh, I didn't see it," um, and that's pretty tricky. Uh, it, that's um, the that that approach has not yielded an enormous amount of insight, uh, the neural correlates of consciousness, because these correlates are only partially, circumstantially correlated with that verbal uh, output. Right. So in the end, it always comes down to asking people. Now, you could say, well, another problem, I mean, one of the deepest problems with neural correlates of consciousness is that you find things that are trivially correlated with consciousness. So I'll give you a dumb analogy or example, I guess. Uh, You could probably find that consciousness is correlated with oxygen. Yeah okay and then you could propose the theory that consciousness is uh inherent in oxygen and that would be kind of a dumb theory or uh you could say um consciousness is correlated with um a certain type of activity in the brain a certain level of activity in the brain because when that activity gets below that level or the you know the um the neural activity waves go below a certain um, frequency and you get into like deep uh, slow wave sleep, then consciousness goes away. Well, yeah, that's because that correlates with the brain ceasing to be active uh, sort of and mass. Um, so the, the neural correlates have been quite tricky. Um, I think as I look at the literature as I said, there's only one really strong, really clear example of how you damage something, and the consciousness consciousness itself is impaired, without a bunch of other things also being impaired. Uh, and that's the um, TPJ, the, that part of the brain, the TPJ. Uh, that's a correlation. That's a that's a connection between that part of the brain and and uh, this conscious experience. This claim of conscious experience. So I'm very skeptical. I have been for a long time of the neural correlates of consciousness approach. It was a good idea, but it's been very fuzzy. Hmm. I,
1: I I'd like to turn now maybe to some some bigger picture questions. And how does the attention schema theory fare versus? other theories of consciousness? Does it connect with them or is it a, I mean, it's got to connect with like visual pro theories of visual processing, for instance, or, or is it more of an all or nothing sort of thing?
0: Um, there are among the major theories of consciousness out there uh, that have been bandied about the people talk about, I and mean, there's a whole bunch of them. in attention schema theory is one of that group of theories out there that people talk about. Um, Almost all of them I would call magical theories, because almost all of them are asking the question, how does a magic essence of experience emerge? How do you get that? Um, and the attention schema theory is one of the few that, in, in uh, as far as I know, the only specific theory that says there is no magic essence of experience, there's something else. And this is why... This is the mechanism by which people think they have a magic experience. Um, so it's a totally different kind of theory. And yet there are still some connections between it and some of these other theories. So you take the one is the global workspace theory. Uh, and I'm very fond of parts of it. And the global workspace theory basically says that information gets into the global workspace, which is the central processing thing in the brain. Uh and then you're conscious of it, consciousness kind of boom, you are you have conscious experience of it once it gets into there. Um, and that central uh, workspace is attention. It's basically the highest level of attention. You pay attention to something enough and it gets into the global workspace and then you're conscious of it. And, um, and it's a magical theory because it says, put something in the magic box, the global workspace, and then the experience feeling comes out of it. Um, So parts of that theory make a lot of sense. There probably is a global workspace, and it it does operate by attention boosting signals until they get in there. And then once they're in there, they can affect systems all over the brain, and the theory hangs together until you get to the consciousness explanation, right? So it's a very interesting case of a theory of consciousness that does beautifully except that it lacks an actual explanation of consciousness. Like everything else, it does good but the consciousness explanation doesn't make any sense. Well, just take the attention schema theory and glom it onto the global workspace theory, and they work really well together, and the attention schema theory answers that question. Uh, And so now you have a much more complete theory. right? They they actually fit nicely together. Um, uh, Another one is the higher order thought theory, which I think is totally compatible with global workspace and attention schema, if you put these theories together in the right way. Um, but without the attention schema, these other theories end up relying on magic. Right? It's almost like, I don't know, we're all trying to build a car and trying to make it run without fuel. And the attention schema theory is the fuel. It's like, no, put me in your engine and, and it'll work. Without me, your theory is, just has to rely on magic and it won't work. Um But there is a sense in which there's compatibilities there and there's some good um, cross uh, kind of connections.
1: Yeah. It sounds very much like the attention schema is sort of an umbrella under which other sorts of processes will then be subsumed and worked in.
0: Yeah. I mean, yes. Attention is a very broad phenomenon and attention schemas, therefore, uh, are, you're right, a kind of umbrella uh, phenomenon.
1: Mm. And then uh, another question that came to mind is, Are you're familiar with that famous paper? uh, I don't know if it's called, I think it it might be called, What's It Like to Be a Bat? But do you think that just that question sort of subscribes to this magical view? Or is this theory something that could actually answer in some satisfactory way, what it might be like to be other creatures.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was Nagel uh, who played a really important role in specifying how philosophers and scientists think about consciousness. Uh, And kind of prior to him, consciousness was everything going on in your brain. And he helped Build this new approach of no consciousness is the what it is like, the experience component by itself, and he helped to build that partly by asking that question. You know, if you're a bat, well, you're not thinking about your future or your taxes or you know the inevitability of death or whatever it is that people think about. You're thinking about other things, bat things, and you know, um, echolocation is really important to you. But whatever it is you're thinking about, it you could still have an experience of it. Uh, and so I took that, I took his argument to be uh, of that nature. Um, so uh, really focusing people on this uh, question of consciousness that then Chalmers called the hard problem. So that was part of that philosophical development. Um, I would say that AST helps, get, uh, provides a possible answer to that. I mean, we don't know about the bat brain. We, there's a lot of things people do know about the bat brain, but I don't think people have studied this aspect of the bat brain. Uh, but if the mechanism it works in a person, it could probably work in a bat too. Uh, my guess is that bats, like other mammals, probably have attention, probably need a schematic model of attention, and therefore probably have some concept in there that's in some way similar to our concept of consciousness.
1: Um, Another extension of the ideas that I was thinking about, they came to mind when you talked about attention algorithms and the improvement of LLMs, for instance, ChatGPT being so powerful. So ChatGPT now has these improved attention algorithms, but we also don't want to say that it's conscious at this point. So does your... Does the AST provide a, a roadmap of sorts for taking these artificial intelligence programs and making them aware? Yeah, it does. Yes, we're working on it. You're working. And, uh, we're working on. It.
0: We're going to try to build these things to be uh, to know what consciousness is, to attribute it to themselves, and to attribute it to other others to people and other agents in the same ways that people know what consciousness is and attribute it to themselves and to others. Um, And the reason why we're doing that, even though that sounds kind of scary is because, well, we want to study it. We want to see what the effects are in a, a contained way, but my, what I think is going, I think people are building sociopathic, AI. AI that's smart, capable, autonomous, but has no idea what consciousness is and no idea that other people have it and no concept of uh, social interaction or pro-sociality. It has none of the tools that evolution gave to people to understand each other and to interact with each other. So as people, we we live in this sea of perceived consciousness. The people around us seem conscious. We resonate and connect with them. And when we start getting violent and un- unpleasant to each other, it's often be- when that mechanism fails and we start to dehumanize the people around us and we stop seeing them as conscious beings and, um, that I think is what we're doing with AI. We're building socio. We're building hard sociopaths, obligate sociopaths. They can't help it, and uh, and it's uh, and yet they still have autonomy, and they can still go out into the world and do what, all kinds of things. But they lack the the pro social tools that that people have, and so this is one of the reasons, the reason why I'm so interested in seeing whether we can build into AI the very concept of consciousness, so that it can see it not just in itself, but in others.
1: Hmm. It's and it's very tricky philosophically to attribute consciousness to other people. I mean, it's the, the problem of other minds, which, I mean, we never have direct access to other people's consciousness, but setting aside this pretty high level of skepticism, how would you determine that something with a completely different substrate from humans, like machines or computer programs, are conscious in the the framework of the ast
0: yeah in the framework the ast of course uh well let me go back to the example of the phantom limb Mm -hmm. right somebody loses a limb an arm and their brain builds a model of an arm and then the person says i have a phantom limb it's horrible it's hurts and it's itchy how can i get rid of it or whatever and it lingers sometimes for years and years um now, you can ask the question, how do you know if that person really has a phantom limb? I mean, how are you going to measure it? Are you going to put like weird electrodes in the air next to their limb and try to measure the phantom floating there? let is unmeasurable. And the answer is, there is no phantom. There's no phantom. There's no, there's no physical thing sticking out of their arm. The ghost does not exist. But if you had the right information probing equipment, You could get into the brain, study the information in the networks and say, is that a brain that's building a model of an arm? And then you'd know the answer. And so in AST works something like that. The question, does it really have consciousness, is kind of ill-posed in AST. Because what people usually mean is, does it have that magic essence of experience? No, it doesn't. Neither do we in AST. We have something else that the brain simplifies and describes as magic essence. And then we believe we have magic essence. Okay, does the computer have that same attention mechanism? Does it have an attention mechanism like we do? That we can answer that, We we, we know objectively by looking at how the thing was built. And and how it's you know network functions, we can say yes, it has attention just like we do. Um, does the machine build a model of its own attention? Well, we can figure that out. We can probe the uh, information content in the machine and say, yep, it's got a model of its own attention. Does it use that model to uh, deduce and report that it has a magic consciousness essence? We can figure that out too. Like all of these are objectively figure outable right? So one can't go and point at the machine and say, we have determined it has the magic consciousness. Uh, you can never do that. It doesn't. But what you can do is say it has the same mechanisms that we have. It has attention and it thinks of its own attention as if it were a magic consciousness, the same way that we do. So you can do all of that. Uh, and the answer thus far for things like chat GBT is no, they don't do that yet. It's totally buildable, but no, they don't do that yet.
1: Yeah, and it's always going to be important to be able to say, you you, you also can't do this with a human. You can't point at a human and say, this is the magic consciousness. So it's an impossible threshold to meet for machines as well. You can only I mean probe them behaviorally and look at the information processing.
0: And this is where I think most philosophers and thinkers and people who come at it casually make the mistake the most common mistake of all is to say i can't tell about anyone else computer or person i can only tell about myself and the reason why that's a mistake is cuz actually you can't tell about yourself because the brain tricks you all the time you know you may th- think with absolute conviction and certainty that you have xy and z that doesn't mean you have xy and z uh, and that's the whole point of this uh, approach, um, the AST approach to consciousness. Mm. You
2: know,
1: so, you, yeah. No, I was going to say. I mean, the phantom limb is a a great example of when somebody thinks they have X but they don't. But are there more uh, quotidian or thing examples that where everybody thinks they have X but they don't? Other than consciousness being this magical essence?
0: Yeah. Uh, I think that if you're looking for an example where people think they have something, but they totally don't have it, that thing doesn't exist. That's very rare. It's always going to be rare because the brain doesn't bother building models of things that don't exist. It only builds models that are useful of things that really exist.
1: Yeah, that's a but good if, point.
0: Right. But if you look in the world of, are there objects that the brain represents inaccurately and then people believe in the inaccuracies, then that's pretty much everything. That's like our whole experience. And I gave the example of white light and color and so on and so on. That's that's just human experience. Like That's ubiquitous.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, we we've come to a, a point in the conversation where I'd like to shift slightly, but maybe not too far. I mean, you're also so you're also a, a novelist and as people will see in the background, a well, they might not be able to infer this from the, the keyboards, but you're you're also a composer. And this might be a, a massive stretch, but do you see your interest in consciousness? as at all connected with your more creative interests?
0: Oh, uh, good question. I mean, I, I think of science as a creative endeavor. Yeah. Um, and I think of science as dependent on imagination mm-hmm. and a willingness to go outside of boxes that most people will like to fit inside. And that's obviously also true of um, art music or or you know uh fiction and so i certainly see them all as kind of similar to each other in spirit um i've always been interested in music i mean, as far back as whenever <laughs> i've always uh made up stuff on the piano when i was very little when i was you know four and five um i've always written fun little storylets since I was very, very young. So these are things that have been with me for a very long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how how they, specifically they interact with each other. Some of my novels actually have some neuroscience that creeps into them.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the reason that I asked is just as a, a writer, as a writer and a musician, you're clearly... Very enamored of the the mysteries of experience and and subtle shifts in emotion and cognition and maybe very subconsciously that uh, made you more interested in in studying consciousness.
0: It could be. I mean, ah, uh, music is an interesting one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so. Music certainly, from a certain from a certain perspective, seems to have a kind of magic to it. It has a, a magic essence to it. <laughs> it has an emotionality to it. Um, so, the idea that you can have a phenomenon that's so complicated that it's very hard to understand at the uh, reductionist level, but at a human experience level, you can understand it and appreciate it. Um, I think that's a lesson that I that I have learned over the years. So I definitely ap- appreciate,, um, I think one of the worries people have is if you study consciousness scientifically, that you're trying to explain it away, and you're trying to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it'd, it'd be exactly the opposite. It's, um, you know, experience is this incredibly wonderful, exciting thing because of music and because of literature and this and that and so on. Why would you want to explain it away? Why wouldn't you want to study it because it's just fascinating and come to a deeper understanding of it scientifically without ever uh, damaging or reducing the experience component?
1: Yeah, people have often quipped that. Daniel Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained, should have been titled Consciousness Explained Away.
0: Yes, yes. I do think there's a fundamental difference between, as much as my work is, my thinking is similar to his, there is a fundamental difference. Because I think he would say there's nothing there. That consciousness being an illusion, an illusion is, uh, to most people, when you use that word colloquially, an illusion means there's nothing there. It's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Um, And I would say consciousness is a caricature. And uh, a caricature is something that is a simplified description of something real. And that's kind of what AST is. It says there's something real. It's a mechanistic thing, but it's real. And then we have a caricature of it, which leads us to these beliefs about our own consciousness. So uh, I think Daniel Dennett would say there's nothing there. It's an illusion. And I would say there is something there, but we have a caricature of it. So there are some differences between my my approach and Dennett's.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, something that he often derides is this image that consciousness is a Cartesian theater, where there, there's something in there doing the watching. And you're not saying that there's anything magical there doing the watching, but attention is quite literally what's watching something elsewhere in the brain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you also said that you think of science as as being very creative and I'm sure mathematicians would say the same, same thing. Um, and I, I, I totally agree, but that, that makes me wonder though, what itch it doesn't scratch for you that music or literature do. Oh, I, and that's a good question. Um,
0: I don't know the answer to that. I've done all of them for so long. I'm not sure I could do without them. (laughs) One thing that music does is, you see my keyboard is right behind me and my desk is right in front of me, my computer. Uh, If I'm writing, which I spend a lot of my time doing, writing science articles, um, I reach a point where I gotta take a break. I can just spin around, play the piano a little bit, put my earphones in play some stuff and then spin back, you know, that kind of taking a break from one thing to work on another thing. I find enormously helpful on a sort of day-to-day basis.
1: Mm. Well, I don't know how I would extend this to music because I don't know. I I play the drums, but I don't know music nearly as well as I, I know fiction. But when you're doing science, when you're at your day job, you're learning a lot about the human mind, in the human brain and and by extension, your brain. But when you're writing fiction, is that at all a process of self-exploration where you're learning a lot about yourself? Do you pay attention to it on that level?
0: Yes. It's uh, all fiction is autobiography at some level. And I think my fiction particularly is kind of metaphorical way of exploring the things that interest me, uh, an emotional level or at a, um, philosophical level. All, all my fiction is, is like that. And and people have said, it's really weird. <laughs> my my fiction can get very, um, uh, surreal, but, um, yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a similarity in process as well, because, um, at the end of the day, whatever you do scientifically, whatever complicated theory and idea and so on and experiment, you're trying to put it on paper in the end because you had to write it up. You got to write a paper. And a paper is linear. It's one word after the next. And so the task is to take something that's highly multidimensional in your head and figure out how to arrange it in one thought after the next in a linear way that makes sense. Um, and I find that process just from the pragmatic point of view is exactly the same writing fiction, where there's some set of emotions and ideas, which is highly multidimensional, that somehow have to get rendered down in a linear fashion in a narrative. Uh, And it's the same thing in music. You can have all kinds of associations and ideas and this theme and that harmony, and they relate this way and so on. But in the end, music is one thing after the next. And it all is this process of reducing it to a, a narrative. Um, and I think also in all those cases, you're thinking about the audience. You're always thinking about, okay, who's going to hear this or read it? And, and am I communicating? And so I find them incredibly similar, actually.
1: Well, the, the reason I ask about the writing is that we spoke a bit earlier about how some people, they might be very angry but they don't realize it. And I think that all writing is a reflection of the writer, but I don't think that all writers really examine that. And it's something that they then learn about themselves from.
0: Yeah. I think certainly there's different kinds of writing and there's some that's way more self-reflective, um, than other kinds, but, uh, um, for me, writing, I think, is always pretty self-reflective.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the the last thing I'll ask, though, because this is something that I don't know much about, is whether you feel there's something similar to the music. Are you learning about yourself when you're composing music, or is it just this distillation of your thinking and ideas?
0: I don't think that the music, my music at least, represents concepts, or philosophies. It must embody a mix of emotions.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: It may embody a kind of general personality. Those things come through, but I don't think they come through consciously. I don't think I'm trying to find my emotional center. And then translating into music but i do think that if you work enough on music you develop a musical center i mean you develop a musical self and that's just who you are as seen through that filter and that you're always trying to bring out you're trying to you know be true to yourself in your your the um the extension of yourself into the musical dimension, whatever that is, you're trying to discover what that is uh, and try not to be other people and other musicians. You want to be yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I suppose though, in the same way that you might look at your, behavior at the end of the day. If you're one of these people who isn't in touch with their emotions and realize that they were angry, you might look at a story you've written and think, oh, I was thinking about this, or this is how I was feeling. And it extends to music. After you write a piece, you might realize, ooh, I was really in a bad mood when I wrote this now that I listened to it.
0: I mean, it could be.
1: I think that both for writing fiction and writing music, it's a very, very slow process
0: with so much revision and rewriting and rethinking that figuring out those moods is a necessary part along the way. Right. So it's very rare. I would say for me, impossible to get through an entire piece and then look back on it and say, Oh wow, I must've been in this mood. It's more like along the way, I'm trying to figure out what is the mood and experimenting with different ways to get at it until finally I figured, yes, this is right. I got it now. And then I can, you know, continue in, in that mood
1: well uh michael this has been awesome i mean consciousness up there with um quantum gravity and cosmology are some of the most fascinating subjects so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about your work and i know you've done so much more on uh, personal space movement so maybe sometime down the line we can talk about those things as well absolutely and thank you so much Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.